wonder this time where she's gone wonder if she's gone to stay ain't no sunshine when she's gone and this house just ain't no home anytime she goes away and you're listening to Bill Withers singing Ain't No Sunshine from his 1971 debut album, Just As I Am. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now, from one of our favorite recurring segments, the story of a song, and this one, Grandma's Hands by Bill Withers. It was on the same record, didn't achieve quite the status that the other hits he made did, songs like Lean On Me, and songs like Just the Two of Us. These were chart toppers. But Grandma's Hands wasn't just Bill Withers' favorite song. It's my favorite Bill Withers song, too. And before we dig into the song and how it came to be, Bill Withers was born in 1938 in a tiny town, population 200 right now, in West Virginia, called Slab Fork. It's in the south-central part of the state, a coal mining town. Let's hear Bill Withers talk about life there. My family lived right beside this railroad track. And so all the white people lived on one side of the railroad track, and all the black people lived on the other side of the railroad track. Well, my mother bought a house that was just on the side that she wasn't supposed to buy it on. But it was, you know, just two houses, two families, you know, that were allowed over there. But when I was growing up, wherever I heard noise, that's where I went to play. And everybody called me little brother. In fact, my mother was looking for me on the side where all the white people lived once, and she was calling me by my name, and nobody said, no, we haven't seen him. Then she thought, well, maybe they, they called him. So they said, have you seen little brother? And said, oh, yeah, he's right over there. So um, there was always a certain interaction here. I think more so than most southern states. Indeed, he would go on to talk about the fact that black and whites went into those mines together and it was dangerous work. So just as soldiers bonded and race meant less in conflict, the same in the mines. And now let's hear an introduction by Bill Withers describing this song to whom it was dedicated, his grandma. Most of us at some point in our lives have somebody that means more to us than anybody else has ever meant before or will ever mean again. Sometimes it's a long-legged lady if you're a man or some tall, very smooth man if you're a woman. But in my case, I learned how to really love somebody from not a very pretty lady, not at that point in her life, not uh, sexy at all, but just a nice old lady who used some very nice old gnarled hands to make life kind of nice for me at that time when I really needed somebody. And it wasn't after I got older and started to look around for things. It was before I even knew what I was looking for. And probably since I consider myself somebody who writes primarily, out of all the... Uh, things that I might have written. My favorite thing that I've written has, has to be about this favorite old lady of mine. 
So here's Bill Withers singing his favorite song and mine. Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well. Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning. She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast. Might fall on a piece of glass. Might be snakes there in that grass. Grandma's hands. Unwed mother, grandma's hand used to ache sometimes and swell. Grandma's hand used to lift her face and tell her she'd say, Baby, grandma, understand that you really love that man. Put yourself in Jesus' hands, grandma's hand. Grandma's hand. Hand me piece of candy, Grandma's hand. Pick me up each time I fell, Grandma's hand. Boy, they really came in a handy. She'd say, Matty, don't you whip that boy. What you wanna spank him for? He didn't drop no apple core, but I don't have Grandma anymore. If I get to heaven, I'll look for Grandma. And what a song, and what direct, simple lyrics. And my goodness, you're hearing the white and the black influences there in that music. You're hearing a bit of country, straight as an arrow, and yet that soul infusion and that backbeat and that voice. And only in America can music like this get created, folks, where different people from different places get together, and it all merges into a beautiful sound. Bill Withers, his story, the story of a song grandma's hands and by the way your favorite song we'll look into it we'll try and find out the story behind the song send your suggestions to ouramericannetwork.org grandma's hands and bill withers he was inducted into the hall of fame in 2015 and stevie wonder performed ain't no sunshine with withers on the stage you could tell it was the highlight of his life an award well earned bill withers the story of Grandma's Hands, the story of a song, here on Our American Stories. Sometimes in our lives We all have pain We all have sorrow But if we are wise We know that If I have 
This is Our American Stories, and we're bringing you stories from across this great country about the impact of coronavirus and the national shutdown and emergency on small businesses across this country. They're the lifeblood of this country, employing and including the business owners, some 90 million Americans. District Donuts is a small chain of donut shops in the Washington, D.C. area. By the way, every time I'm in D.C., I stop and have one. They're best known for putting flavors we love on donuts. And I mean the Dolce de Leche, the Cherry Blossom, the Baklava, Bailey's and Chocolate. All of it's so good. They've been voted the best donut shop in Washington, D.C. for four consecutive years. We're going to hear from their CEO, Greg Mena, on their business's story and the impact of the coronavirus epidemic and the forced shutdown on their business. Here's Greg. I wanted to paint a little bit of a picture to give some insight into just how difficult this situation is for the restaurant industry, the food industry in particular. It is effectively destroying the industry. So I wanted to tell a little bit about that, uh, beginning really with our story in general. we got to go back to the beginning to understand the effect that it's having currently for us. So we co-founded the company together, three of us, a gourmet pastry chef, Christine Schaefer, a lifelong childhood friend of mine, Juan Pablo, and myself. And that was 2012. And so over the course of the last eight years since then, every day I've woken up and tried to figure out how do you make a great company, a place that at the end of the day, no matter how big or small it is, how do you make a place where people are cared for, people are, people matter, and they're the ones that are making this thing come to life, this thing that you might have a general vision in your mind, a picture of what it might be, but you really don't know what it is, and you're trying to shape what it is. You're trying to find out what it is. I've heard songwriters describe writing a song as uh, more of an experience like hunting for treasure or digging for treasure and they they're digging and then they feel their shovel hit something and then they start to kind of brush off the the dirt and and debris that's on the rock that they hit and then they start to see what that rock looks like they're discovering it and that's kind of what i felt this has been like it's been a discovery we started out of a shared kitchen space called union kitchen in dc that was really where we started to experiment and kind of get our feet under us Uh, Chef Christine, just working at night, making product, and I would go and pick it up and deliver it to people, small orders, individual, word of mouth throughout D.C., just to get some revenue in the door to continue experimenting and continue learning so that we could eventually launch the first store location of our idea. And so as we kind of picked through that process and She would make the product and I would deliver it. I was also just on the business end trying to piece together what did a a donut company look like? How could you create an experience for a customer and just an operable business model? And so as we wrote the manual, we were also operating the machine. All of this was done on the fly. And I say on the fly because I, as one of the co-founders, started this at 24. Prior to that, I had no real and substantial professional experience whatsoever. And so we started with one location and and quickly realized that we, wow, we have have something here with with a lot of love for for the brand and and deep love for our product. And 
And so within a year and a half through incredible amounts of work and, and learning and difficulty and challenge, we, we opened another store and we, we started to learn distribution. And so we all of a sudden found ourselves in the middle of what was the real business model, which was a hub and spoke, one place where you're producing donuts and you're making them the same way, fresh and from scratch, but you're distributing them to more retail stores because we realized that's what the economics required. It's very difficult to make a dollar off of a donut, even if you're charging a higher price like us. It's really challenging. A baked good you have to make a lot of. You have to scale it up, so to speak. But doing that with a handmade product is, well, that just sounds like an oxymoron. How do you scale up handmade? And so as we opened the second store, we started to realize that that's exactly what our model was. And we also started to to learn how to have a bit more efficiency. And so we said, okay, we think a third location is possible. And then a third location opportunity presented itself at the wharf, kind of the coolest new development in D.C. in, in 20. Uh, 17 and into 2018. So we opened there in 2018. And uh, we, we'd estimated that we could handle the, the demand that that store would add. But we soon found out that, that it was impossible to produce our product in the confines of our first store, which has a 750 square foot kitchen, very small. We ran out of floor space and it's really difficult and hot and totally cramped to have our staff trying to make every part of every donut from scratch, the dough, the toppings, the fillings, the glaze, everything from scratch. And for anyone that's ever worked with dough, even in your own home, kind of on a small scale, dough is a very involved process to make it the real classical way, an incredibly involved process to do real fermentation, you know, overnight to get that unique flavor and, and kind of the development of, of the, fluffy structure of a real dough, which is what we've done from day one. It takes a lot of time. And to do that on a large scale where you're talking hundreds of pounds of dough, you just run out of room. And that's what we found with our third location, our busiest one to date when we opened it in 2018. So from day one in first store, which is 2014, to uh, day one of store three, which is 2018, four years later, we had grown to a significant production level for us, and it had outgrown our ability to produce in that first store's kitchen. And so at the same time, we had been pursuing an additional bakery space, and we were able to to lock that in, and, and we were able to get it going roughly just at the same time as we were opening the third store. So it really helped us to be able to produce not only the donuts themselves, but all the parts of the donuts, because that's something that, that we do that we believe is really the, the root, the difference of what our product is to people. And so as we open and launch a, a second bakery, we start to realize that we, we kind of reached a, we're in the middle, we're hanging a little bit in, in, in midair, which is, is dangerous and difficult for a small company, because now we had additional production capacity kind of the the central bakery with a square layout that our chef, Christine, my co-founder, had always wanted. But now we had too much capacity and we had too high costs. And so now we had the problem of now we needed to grow even more and we needed to grow immediately. 
And so we did so. And so from the middle of the summer of 2018, when we opened store number three to July 2019, we aggressively pursued two more deals and opened two more retail stores. One, six months later, in one of DC's coolest places, Union Market, just an awesome, awesome kind of community gathering place with the coolest food options in DC. So it really helped to offset the losses that we were seeing by having this new bakery that enabled us to meet the demand of this third store, but was now too much from a cost perspective. And and so now having a fourth store helped to offset the costs of adding that third store. And But still, there was a gap. And so we we're pushing hard and pursuing to open a fifth store so that we could finally reach a, a place of stabilization with our, our cost structure and our model. And all of this happening really just at the beginning of 2020. We had finally reached a place where we really understood our cost structure. We had a grip on it and we could control it. So with in the picture I just painted, as of two weeks ago, we were a company at the beginning of March that had had really finally honed its its model and operations to be one that would be able to be considerably profitable in a way that it takes years of work to scale up to. And then this presented itself. And it's just incredibly challenging to face and, and deeply difficult and disappointing, especially because we have been forced to close two of the five locations that we've opened because they're in mass gathering areas as defined by the D.C. government and, and the government of Arlington County and, and the Commonwealth of Virginia. So those locations are now no longer allowed to operate. And, and, and so what that does for us, according to the collective model that I've described, to have five locations and have that, that central bakery dependent upon those five locations because they're effectively buying donuts from the central bakery. And so now if we lose two of those locations, we could no longer employ our team members at those locations. And so we deemed it best to, to let them go because we, we don't know when those locations would be allowed to open again. And you're listening to Greg Mena, CEO of District Donuts. And when we come back, we'll continue with this really, really tough story here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Greg Mena, the co-founder of the best donut shop in the Washington, D.C. area. Heck, I think it's one of the best donut shops I've ever been in. Greg is sharing with us how the coronavirus epidemic led local governments to shut down two of his five locations that are in food halls, which forced their small business to lay off the employees that work there. Let's return to Greg. Considering the kind of looming but still unclear and undecided claims of of larger expanded unemployment benefits and and opportunities, we decided it would be better if staff were able to just access the maximum amount of unemployment than to sit in limbo uh, and, and wait that hopefully our SBA application for a disaster loan would be approved or a DC micro grant loan would be approved and just let our team 
go and and with the hopes that hey as soon as this lifts we're we're going to bring you back but we could not offer that promise to anyone and so we we let them go and then because of the effect that closing those retail locations has on the company as a whole and the bakery in specific we had to let a good portion of our bakery and distribution teams go as well and so we reduced our team by 33% overnight and as one of the founders of this business who's, who's met every employee that's worked for us and it's just a it's hard to describe how disheartening that is and how as the owner as as a person who's who ultimately kind of signs off on that it's there's nothing that makes you feel there's nothing more defeating because it's the last thing you want to do but it's what is best and it's just deeply difficult and 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 painful and we uh but we have to we have to do it so that the the larger promise that district donut holds once we can see our way through this situation can continue and and then just as as a man you know district donut owner aside it's is the right thing to do because we really do i really do want to make sure that we're able to tell the truth and to have as much integrity as as we can uh, through this and so in conjunction with that the leadership team the management team the salaried team with us you know our director of sales and marketing who's built the name of district donut virtually single-handedly and then along with the manager of our retail operations and the manager of our bakery operations and and myself have all had to take a 50 to to 100% pay cut for the foreseeable future and that's because the business still has its liabilities and it has its costs and in order to keep it alive for the long term great sacrifices are having to be made and it's just amazing to be I'm humbled that I'm a part of a team and that I have young men specifically around us that that are sacrificing in the short term for the long term hope of the company and the the jobs that it could offer the the opportunities it could offer to folks and and they're doing that so that we could keep even keep as many of the team members around as possible and so i just i'm i'm so thankful to be seeing that in the midst of something that's so disheartening and so challenging but our story is just one the district owner story is just one of many our industry and the dc restaurant kind of community is decimated so many restaurants have had to lose their entire teams it's an incredible thing to witness a deeply distressing thing to to see and we're very fortunate to be able to continue operating it even in a in a greatly limited capacity because we're not a restaurant and and we fall within operational kind of rules that that allow us to keep going and and we're to be honest with you we we have had constant you know even hourly conversations as a leadership team about okay there are a lot of concerns and and there are real matters to take to heart in do we continue operating is it unsafe per varying reports but we you know we have talked with our staff members individually we have been continuing to evaluate every guideline that's released and on the national like federal level and the local and 
and and so combining those the conversations with staff members and an evaluation of the guidelines of safety our staff members have said we want to keep working like we we want we want to be able to provide for ourselves and our families and in conjunction with with that and and with with a very strong belief that we can operate safely because our model was already a quick one grab and go has always been our game a quick experience that got customers through quickly a punch of an experience and so we were already kind of set up for this and so we we certainly have had huge adjustments in heavily heavily pushing towards the delivery end of things working with great companies like Uber on Uber Eats and Postmates who have waived delivery fees to customers for at least 30 days which has been so great to enable the restaurant industry to really capitalize on on every sale possible at a time when every single customer is essential to survival and we just continue to push to do that because not only do we want to provide a paycheck provide income to our our team members but as a business and and as a business purveying artisanal high end from scratch beautiful donuts we believe we have a unique and and we really this is from the heart like we don't think this is we don't think this is uh this is a kind of a cliche we really believe this that we're our our mantra is happiness found period that's our mantra we have been and we now perhaps more than ever have a unique chance to provide people with a little dose a little glimpse of happiness in a time where they are surrounded with words and with thoughts and prospects of worry and concern and uh, danger and fear some of that rightly so but some of it exacerbated and visited upon people to an even greater extent than is potentially necessary and i say that not as any evaluation uh, of a health professional but as someone as a human being who recognizes that even if something is dangerous for us to continually dwell on it and worry about it can do more harm to us sometimes or additional harm that we don't necessarily need to have and so our company hopes that we can continue to operate with great safety with intelligence hygiene with constant cleaning sanitizing washing of the hands everything possible to provide a delicious product and a moment of joy and happiness for people in a very uncertain time and so that is district donut that's our story we're just trying to like every other small business in the united states right now we're just trying to employ every ounce of ingenuity we have in our brains and every conceivable avenue of getting the attention of customers to buy from us as long as we can and for as long as there's no edict in place that prevents us from doing any business we're going to do so with a full heart and with as much care as we can and namely just cuz our donuts are amazing and they are amazing you're listening to district donut co-founder greg mena they've gone from 45 to 30 employees their business is down 50% 
And by the way, what was interesting is listening to him talk about the seven and a half year struggle to consistent profitability. This is what every entrepreneur knows, the years and years of struggle to be able to be a viable business. It could all go up in smoke. If you're ever in the D.C. area, go to District Donut. I'm telling you, the best donut ever. I'm hooked. I can't not have one when I'm there. District Donut story, Greg Mena's story during this coronavirus epidemic. Want to hear your story? Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Story. stories and our next story is brought to us by a regular contributor bill bright who brings us the story of the lionel train conceived by joshua lionel cohen and his success was completely by accident as many great inventions are brilliant though he was the first electric train cohen invented was not intended to be a toy here's bill with the story Once American railroads dominated popular culture because they were the only means of fast land transportation. Now, there are other ways to get there from here. They seem less important, and toy trains share the marginalization of their prototypes. For perhaps a decade after World War II, the technical, managerial, and promotional genius of Joshua Lionel Cohen, founder of the Lionel Corporation, made his toy trains a solid part of American middle-class boyhood. In 1952 alone, Lionel produced 622,209 engines and 2,460,764 freight and passenger cars. Ron Hollander's delightful, lavishly illustrated biography of Cohen and his company, All Aboard, states that Lionel's 1952 production eclipsed the nation's railroads, which had a mere 43,000 locomotives and 1.8 million cars in service. Joshua Lionel Cohen was born on Henry Street in Manhattan's Lower East Side on August 25, 1877. He preferred playing ball, bicycling, hiking, and tinkering with mechanical toys to formal education and soon became fascinated with electricity, its transmission, and its storage in batteries. In the labs at Peter Cooper Institute, he built what may have been, or what he claimed was, Cohen had no false modesty, the first electric doorbell. In 1899, he patented a device for igniting photographer's flash powder by using dry cell batteries to heat a wire fuse. Cohen then parlayed this into a defense contract to equip 24,000 Navy mines with detonators. His ignorance of armament manufacture did not stop him. He used mercuric fulminate, a sensitive and powerful explosive. His supplier's deliverymen told him, The company said you should always keep a good deal around. It's better to be dead than maimed. 
In 1900, with $12,000 in profits, he began manufacturing electrical novelties at 24 Murray Street in Lower Manhattan as the Lionel Manufacturing Company. He was 23 years old. Business was slow. He invented a battery-powered electric fan. He said, it was the most beautiful thing you ever saw. It ran like a dream, and it had only one thing wrong with it. You could stand a foot away from the thing and not feel any breeze. While walking on Cortland Street, a few blocks south of his offices, he stopped before Robert Ingersoll's toy store. Cohen was intrigued by store display windows, though he found most boring, and Ingersoll's was no exception. It was full of cast iron fire engines, balancing clowns and elephants on wheels, wind-up boats, and a tin locomotive on a pull string, all sitting lifeless. Cohen thought the constant motion of an electric toy might draw a crowd to the window. He looked at the locomotive again. Then he entered the store and sold Ingersoll on the idea that had just come to him on the sidewalk. He soon returned with the first Lionel train, the Electric Express. It looked like an open wooden cigar box on wheels. As Cohen later said, I sold my first railroad car not as a toy, but as the first animated advertisement in New York outside of Sandwichmen and live demonstrators. I sold it for four dollars. Well, sir, the next day he was back for another. The first customer who saw it bought the advertisement instead of the goods. Ingersoll ordered half a dozen more. Other stores ordered them too. Cohen had found his niche. In 1902, he produced his first electric trolley car sold as a set with 30 feet of steel track. It cost $7. This was not cheap. An industrial worker's wages for a six-day week then averaged $9.42. In 1906, he began using three-rail track, which radically simplified electrical transmission. Now an operator could build an elaborate track layout with turnouts and reversing loops without complicated wiring. A year after that, his catalog listed trolleys, steam and electric locomotives, passenger cars and freight cars, all brightly painted and lettered for the New York Central, Pennsylvania, Lake Shore, and other railroads. Cohen did not lack competition, but Cohen beat them because he produced a reliable product with an expanding line of accessories and was an audacious promoter, selling his toys as educational because he knew parents needed a rationalization for their purchase. Knowledge of electricity is valuable, not only as a profession, but as an education, whether one is an electrical engineer or a bell hanger. The kids couldn't have cared less. By 1912, Cohen had 150 employees. World War I stopped the import of German toy trains, and without serious domestic competition, Lionel became the dominant market player with its large, lavishly illustrated color catalogs bringing the message to millions. By the late 30s, Cohen's models of the era's great locomotives, the New York Central's Hudson, the Milwaukee Road's Hiawatha, and the Jersey Central's Blue Comet, started, accelerated, slowed, and stopped in response to push-button remote controls. They pulled an endless cascade of boxcars, hoppercars, tank cars, and passenger cars. In 1929, Cohen unveiled the Transcontinental Limited, which stretched nine feet. It cost $110, then more than a second-hand Ford Model T car. As John R. Stilgo noted in Metropolitan Corridor, his study of railroads in American culture, Lionel's catalogs emphasized the trains and their environment. 
The bridges, stations, signal towers, tunnels, and turntables, all placed among twisting lines of track. Crossing signals with flashing lights, ringing bells, and descending gates protected the miniature citizens of Lionel City and Lionelville from onrushing expresses. Expansion was interrupted only by World War II. By 1945, most Americans hungered for distractions. Cohen's vision of America, as reflected in his trains and accessories, struck the exact chord of nostalgia and progress, and the orders poured in. Lionel's showroom on East 26th Street in Manhattan held a huge layout with a four-track main line. Cars coupled and uncoupled, drawbridges rose and fell, and coal bunkers dumped coal into waiting hopper cars. Cattle herded themselves into and out of stock cars. As trains passed through grade crossings, tiny crossing guards popped from their shacks to wave their lanterns. Whistles, chuffing sounds, and even smoke came out of the locomotives. Cohen, who had handed over Lionel's presidency to his son, Lawrence, loved to spend hours among the crowds, occasionally providing expert advice to customers. Hollander recounts how Lawrence, who lived at Two Sutton Place, was awakened by his doorbell at 6 a.m. one Christmas day. He found two small neighbors in pajamas who asked, Can you fix our trains? Understandably, their parents were still asleep. Lawrence, in bathrobe and slippers, followed them up to their apartment. The president of Lionel soon had the trains running. Then he wished the boys a Merry Christmas and padded back downstairs to bed. The good times didn't last. They never do. From 1953, Lionel's best year, to 1959, sales dropped by more than half. It was television. Hollander noted that families got together to watch I Love Lucy, not to wire Lionel's new ice depot and watch a tiny man push blocks of ice down the open hatch of a toy refrigerator car. It was aging. As kids grew older, they became more interested in Elvis, James Dean, girls, and cars. And it was the decline of American railroads. Cohen's marketing genius had perfectly fit the nation's mood for perhaps eight years. Then, suddenly, it didn't. In 1958, the company lost money for the first time since the Depression. In September 1959, Lawrence returned from a sales trip to the Far East to learn that his father and sister had sold their shares of stock to a group of businessmen led by Cohen's great-nephew, Roy Cohn. Cohn paid $15 for each of his Lionel shares in 1959. Four years later, he sold them for $5.25. Lionel survives to this day despite a string of bankruptcies and reorganizations. In 1999, A&E produced an hour-long show ranking the top 10 toys of the 20th century. Lionel was number four, preceded only by the yo-yo, crayons, and Barbie. If Cohen had been alive, he died on September 8, 1965, and was buried within hearing of a secondary freight line of the Long Island Railroad, the old promoter would have screamed in protest. This was unfair. The trains should have come first. And great job, as always, by Robbie, and a special thanks to Bill Breich, our resident historian who tells such great stories about so many different kinds of things. My goodness, to have done what Cohen managed to do, which is to create one of the great toys of the 20th century, ranked number four. And by the way, Barbie, crayons, and yo-yo. 
That's pretty, that's pretty heavy territory. The story of Joshua Lionel Cohen. In the end, the story of the Lionel Toy Train. And so much more about America, the American dream, and how we live as American families. Here on Our American Stories. James has led this outlaw band Picking his way on a thoroughbred grade Through the trails of this southern land With a gun in his hand And we're listening to Charlie Daniels singing Riding with Jesse James From the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And after a century and a half Jesse James remains one of the most iconic and romanticized figures in American history. Many people even see Jesse James as a type of Robin Hood or a folk hero, despite his sometimes murderous ways. Although separating fact from fiction can be quite a task, we brought in America's best storyteller of the Old West. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Here's McGrath. The great American poet, Carl Sandburg, said... Jesse James is the only American bandit who is classical, who is to this country what Robin Hood or Dick Turpin is to England, whose exploits are so close to the mythical and apocryphal. Well, most biographers of Jesse James would agree with Sandberg's description. They portray James as dashing, courageous, and romantic. And he certainly was all of those things. However, it can also be ruthless, cunning, and deadly. Most of all, though, he was extraordinarily good at what he did, rob banks and trains. For 16 years, Jesse James rode and robbed and went unapprehended. When his end did come, it came not at the hands of a lawman, but at the hands of a traitor in his own gang. Jesse James was born in 1847 in Clay County, at the far western edge of Missouri, an area known as Little Dixie. He is the second son of Robert and Zerelda James. Their older son, Frank James, is born in 1843. The father, Robert James, is a Baptist minister. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. Robert James, he's selected by a group of men there who want to go out west to California. And he's the chaplain on this expedition to go out gold mining. Jesse's a very young child at this time, and his father dies in California. Jesse's mother, and now widow, Zerelda James, is a fierce southern woman. She remarries twice after Robert's death and continues to manage her late husband's 300-acre hemp farm and seven slaves. Here's historian David Eisenbach. 
Zerelda, raised both of her sons uh, to not only uh, be for the institution of slavery, but to fight for it and to commit crimes in the name of the cause. Her second marriage lasts no more than a few months before that husband leaves also. Then in 1855, she marries Dr. Reuben Samuel, who spends most of his time farming rather than practicing medicine. He's quiet and reserved. Zerelda is stormy and assertive. It proves a good match, and they have four children together. But life in Missouri in the 1850s is hardly stable. The question of slavery is ripping apart the American frontier. When Jesse is just nine, the Kansas-Missouri border war erupts. During the five years of bloody war that follow, everybody on the border is forced to take sides. In 1854, the institution of slavery is being challenged in the nation's capital. The Nebraska territory on Missouri's border is ready to become a state. Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas believes that the majority of citizens in a territory should decide the issue of slavery for themselves. Douglas proposes splitting the territory into Kansas and Nebraska and have the residents in each area vote for a slave state or a free state. The Kansas-Nebraska Act leaves the decision on whether a new territory would be slave or free to the voters. This bill will triumph. It will impart peace to the country and stability to the union. No opposition to this act leads to the formation of the Republican Party and its first presidential candidate, John C. Fremont, in 1856. Well, nonetheless, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes, which means slavery could possibly expand into new areas. This ignites a firestorm, and Kansas becomes a battleground as free soil proponents rush in from the north and slavery advocates rush in from Missouri. Western Missouri becomes a staging ground for pro-slavery Southerners and are pejoratively called bushwhackers. Free soil farmers from the north are called Jayhawkers. Kansas becomes bleeding Kansas. Could be said, the Civil War starts in Kansas in the late 1850s. On the James family farm, Zerelda is busy shaping her boys to be the next generation of pro-Confederate fighters. Here's Jesse James historian, Michael Gooch. She was not a wallflower by any means, very vocal, very outspoken. Don't you take anything from those Yankees, you hear me? It's every man's responsibility to hold on to what they've got. Over the next six years, the James family farm transforms into a Confederate stronghold. On April 12, 1861, the South fires on Fort Sumter and the Civil War formally begins. Frank James is immediately plunged into battle, fighting for the militia in the Confederate Army. But Union troops rout the Confederate forces in Missouri and then occupy Clay County. Here's T.J. Stiles. Andrew Nelson, and Civil War historian Christopher Phillips. The local militia forces began to raid the homes of those suspected of assisting the insurgents and partisans in Clay County. 
And the war quickly took on this savage counterinsurgency guerrilla warfare conflict that can be some of the most savage warfare of all. The southern sympathizers in this area could easily be taken out, lynched in their own yards. Their houses were burned on a regular basis, livestock confiscated by the Union authorities, and it became an eye for an eye. It was so bad that uh, one Union commander actually ordered the depopulation of four entire counties of western Missouri. Everyone had to leave, and then their homes were burned. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Jesse James and, of course, pre-Civil War America. This is Our American Stories. Jesse don't know much, but he's learning fast. Ain't seen a man take to it like young Jesse has. And we're listening to Johnny Cash singing Six Guns Shooting. When we last left off with the inevitable approaching Civil War, Jesse James' brother Frank has joined a southern guerrilla band of bushwhackers, and the James family's hotly contested border state of Missouri is being flooded by both Union and Confederate sympathizers. Let's return to Roger McGrath. Here on Our American Stories, we continue with the story of Jesse James. Here's Jesse James' biographer, Dan Marcoux. Union militia in the area started looking for these bushwhackers. Zeralda had told everyone that Frank was one of them. 15-year-old Jesse is out plowing in a field when northern soldiers come looking for Frank. Come for your brother, Frank. I don't know where he is. I believe you do, you little rebel punk. Hang Frank's respected stepfather, Dr. Reuben Samuel, to a tree. Ruben! Right in front of Zerelda and Jesse. Until Reuben finally gives up Frank's location. It's this violent experience that will push Jesse to join his brother in the spring of 1864. To be treated like the Jameses were treated, demanded that vengeance be taken, or you could not hold your head up as a man. In Missouri, vengeance is best got riding with one of the dozens of Confederate guerrilla bands. In the company of these men, who operate outside the rules of war, Jesse James will be schooled in the art of ambushing, violence, and terror. There are no papers to sign, no uniforms, no government-issue firearms. Jesse simply follows creeks and hog trails into the darkness of the Missouri woods where the Confederate guerrillas make camp. Most notorious leader of these Confederate guerrilla bands is Quantrill's Raiders, commanded by William Quantrill. Here's Mark Gardner, author of Shot All to Hell, Jesse James, The Northfield Raid, and the Wild West's greatest escape. Quantrill's Raiders were guerrilla fighters fighting for the South. They didn't necessarily fight in traditional ways, and the way they fought could often be very savage, very violent, and their targets could be civilians as well as military. By 1863, Frank James is riding with Quantrill 
And a year later, so too is 17-year-old Jesse. Quantrell's band raid, loot, burn, and kill. Their main targets are the railroads, the lifeblood of the Union advance. One of Quantrell's lieutenants, Bloody Bill Anderson, said of Jesse, not to have any beard, he is the keenest and cleanest fighter in the command. Well, during the summer of 1864, Jesse is shot in the chest. But within a month, he's back in the saddle, and he participates in a train hijacking led by Bloody Bill at Centralia, Missouri. Instead of capturing supplies, they find something even more valuable. Here's Civil War historian Donald Frazier. This train has aboard a number of Union forces and home guards that are on their way home. They're unarmed. They really pose no threat, but they've now fallen to Bloody Bill Anderson and his band. All you Yankees are gonna die like dogs! Bloody Bill's guerrillas kill four civilians and 22 Union soldiers. Bloody Bill wasn't afraid to send a message. That could be pretty brutal. Confederates justifiably argue the massacres are in response to Union atrocities in Missouri. Jesse is shot in the chest a second time, and shortly thereafter learns of Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox in April 1865. After four years of bloody fighting, though, he has no intention of surrendering. For Jesse James, this is not an end of his conflict. This is the end of someone else's conflict. Not Jesse James's conflict, not Frank James's conflict. Their conflict isn't over. It's still going on. Jesse James returns home to his deeply divided border state of Missouri. Here's Old West historian Jeff Morey and David Eisenbach. After the Civil War, the South was hellacious. It had been ruined. And there was a great deal of resentment uh, of Northern authority, of federal authority. Missouri is one of these states that stuck with the Union during the Civil War, but had large sectors of the population that wanted to go with the South in the first place. So you had Missourians fighting Missourians. It's in this incredibly volatile, literally brother against brother world that we get Jesse James. Jesse discovers the war has not only torn apart his homeland, it's left his family with nothing. With Northern Reconstructionists in power across Missouri, Jesse and his brother Frank join forces with their cousins, the brothers Cole, Jim, and Bob Younger, who share their fierce hatred for Yankees. The Youngers also served under Quantrell and Bloody Bill and ended up losing their father and family home to the Union. Here's Old West historian Marcus Huff. The James and the Youngers had known each other well before the Civil War. Uh, they honed that relationship. They realized the potential they had as a fighting force. What do you reckon's next force? Jesse decides the best way to express his hatred for the North is to go after Northern wealth. They had to do something to strike back against federal authority and everything they saw as being oppressors in their life. They looked at themselves as freedom fighters and tried to strike a blow for Southern manhood and Southern honor and Southern virtue. 
Having converted to the now worthless Confederate money, there's very little United States currency left in the South. Most of the money held in the banks is coming in from Reconstructionists investing in reunion. Jesse James' decision, therefore, to rob banks is as much political as it is criminal. Go. The gang's first heist is also the first daylight bank robbery in American history during peacetime. Everything in your vault. It occurs at 2 p.m. in Liberty, Missouri, on a cold, snowy day on February 13, 1866. The bank is owned by Republican former militia officers who recently conducted the first Republican Party rally in Clay County's history. The James Younger Gang hits the jackpot with a sum equal to nearly $900,000 in today's money. And the bank is now known as the Jesse James Bank Museum. Rob a bank? Get it named for you. Four months later, in Jackson County, Missouri, the gang frees two jailed members of Quantrill's Raiders, killing the jailer in their effort. That revolver shot is somewhat of a release. Jesse refused to forget. A lot of his makeup was revenge. Come on, Jesse, we gotta go. Jesse, come on, come on! Get, boy, get! Now, the railroads are established by the Union during the war. And the, the railroad is a symbol of northern power and, and progress and a tool to rebuild the country and its wealth. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency, headquartered in Chicago, is hired to guard the cargo of railroads. For Jesse and Frank, the trains are a perfect target. The Pinkertons were essentially the first real detective agency, almost the precursor of an FBI. And their role was to essentially run down criminals. Boy, now put your back into it. Jesse's first train robbery comes in 1873 near Council Bluffs, Iowa. Jesse and company pull a rail out of place, and the train's engineer, John Rafferty, sees it move as the gang tugs on a rope attached to the rail. He immediately reverses the control lever. He saves the train but he and the locomotive flip off the track and he dies. Jesse and the boys get some 2,000 from the train safe, not the great haul they were expecting, and decide to rob the passengers also. Then waving their hats and shouting farewell, the boys gallop off. Evidently feeling bad about robbing the passengers. Ladies and gentlemen. In their next train robbery, the James gang examine the hands of each male passenger to determine whether he is a working man. According to a passenger, Jesse and the boys say they did not want to rob working men or ladies, but only the money and valuables of the plug hat gentleman. But the train robberies are bad for both the soft-handed businessmen and the callous-handed workers. The railroads do not want robbers stopping their train. They don't want robbers terrifying their passengers. It's bad for business. In fact, there was one railroad passenger who said, I don't care if it costs me $500. I'm not riding a train through Missouri. I'll go, I'll go around through Iowa or, or Minnesota or whatever, but I'm not going to take a train through the state of Missouri. And when we come back, more of the life of Jesse James.
For too long now I've been at this game A rider like hell through the wind and rain Robbing bankers and a Pullman car This is Our American Stories. We're listening to Levon Helm singing One More Shot from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. We last left off with the James Younger Gang wreaking havoc on the train industry. Let's pick up from there. Here's Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. News of the James Brothers' holdup spreads quickly. The robbery is a blow to the railroads and embarrasses the Pinkertons. Alan Pinkerton, their founder, who had been a spy for the Union during the Civil War, takes it personally upon himself to bring Jesse to justice. In Kansas City, the name Jesse James catches the eye of a former Confederate major turned newspaper editor who is trying mightily to inspire the Confederate wing of the Democratic Party to jump back into the fight. John Newman Edwards was probably the most hardcore of Confederates. And in his opinion, Southerners had been outlawed, disenfranchised by the North. Edwards is a bit of an alcoholic. He's disappointed. He is uh, an unrepentant rebel. And if there was ever a minister of propaganda for the Southern rebels and the outlaws that followed the Civil War, it was John Newman Edwards. In the eyes of John Newman Edwards, Jesse James has achieved hero status. He continues writing about Jesse and those writing with him in a similar vein until his death in 1889. For Edwards and many other Southerners, this is not only about Jesse and other Confederate guerrillas, but about the lost cause of the Old South. Edwards, he wanted to see these downtrodden Confederates take their political future into their own hands. And he thought the James Gang would inspire them. And that's why he started writing positive reports. He made them the legends that they were. In Edwards' fanciful telling, Jesse's religious, kind to women, children, and animals, saves poor widows from foreclosure. Well, he is America's Robin Hood. Thanks to John Newman Edwards and the power of the press, Jesse James is no longer seen as a criminal, but as a folk hero for the South. Here's Jesse James scholar Kathy Jackson. If you're going to be an outlaw, what better way to escape the law and get people to help you than to have them believe that you are doing it for them, for a greater good? Jesse partners with Edwards and continues his robbing spree targeting Northern wealth. Newspaper readers across the country buy into the Robin Hood myth, but not the Pinkertons. Although Governor Silas Woodson issues a $2,000 reward for the James brothers, the biggest threat to Jesse's life comes from the private sector. Alan Pinkerton, who's made an art of reconnaissance and infiltration, sends his ambitious 26-year-old undercover agent, Joseph Witcher, into Clay County. First thing he did after getting off the train was to go to the sheriff, ask where the James or Samuel farm is. 
He told the sheriff who he was, what he was doing. Sheriff told him, do not go out there. Those boys will kill you. If they don't kill you, the old lady will. He didn't listen. He was later found the next day with four gunshot wounds in his chest and two in his head with a note pinned on his jacket that said, this is what happens to detectives who come looking for the James boys. Alan Pinkerton had never suffered a defeat like this. It became a personal vendetta for him, and he began to undertake the operation on his own expense. A month after murdering Pinkerton agent Witcher, Jesse marries his first cousin, Zerelda Z. Mims, named after Jesse's own mother. But it doesn't slow him down. Trains and banks continue to fall victim to his gang at a startling rate. Largest hauls are $30,000 from the Kansas Pacific Railroad and 10000 in cash and valuables from the Tishomingo Savings Bank in Corinth, Mississippi. On a January night in 1875, a Pinkerton raiding party suspecting Jesse is visiting home surrounds the James family farm. Pinkerton knew that the James boys would at some point come to that house. He had men ready, at least eight to 10. Whenever they learned that Jesse and Frank were at that farm, he was gonna send those men in. What are we waiting for? Alan Pinkerton plotted to bring about the demise of the James brothers. The Pinkertons threw a firebomb into the farmhouse in hopes of driving Jesse out. But the only ones home are Jesse's mother, stepfather, and nine-year-old half-brother, Archie. Reuben and Zerelda think it's a firebomb and sweep it into the fireplace. That turns it into an actual bomb. Firebomb explodes and kills Archie and mangles his mother's right hand so bad it is later amputated. The explosion is heard as far away as three miles. John Newman Edwards frames the story of the Pinkerton's raid as a direct attack on the South by a Northern enemy. No one is ever brought to trial for the murder of Jesse's half-brother, which again gives Jesse a reason to seek his own justice. If the law is not going to bring these guys to justice, then Jesse's going to do what he can. After the botched raid, Alan Pinkerton's detective agency is forced to back away from their more aggressive tactics. Jesse and Frank hide out in Nashville. In the summer, Z gives birth to Jesse's son, Jesse Edwards James. 1876 looks like it could be a banner year for Jesse. He opens his summer campaign with a $15,000 haul of cash from the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Then Bill Chadwell, a James gang member from Minnesota, suggests they rob what he thinks will be an easy mark in his home state, deep in Northern Territory. The suggestion is debated within the gang, but finally it's decided to head 400 miles north after Bob Younger informs the boys of a major depositor at First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Reconstructionist historian 
Eric Foner. You can rob a bank in Missouri. Why do you have to go hundreds of miles away to rob a bank? They got plenty of banks. Because he had heard that the reconstruction governor of Mississippi, Adelbert Ames, had relatives up in Northfield, and a lot of his money was in this bank. And James decided, we're going to go up there, and we're going to rob that bank to take the money of the reconstruction governor of Mississippi. On September 7th, 1876, the James Younger Gang approaches the first national bank of Northfield, Minnesota, just 45 miles south of Minneapolis. But with their long coats and impressive sidearms, the Missouri boys stand out among the mostly farming folk, many of them Swedish immigrants. Move! We intend to rob this here bank! Who's the cashier? You open that safe now. And you're listening to the story of Jesse James. And by the way, what a job Roger McGrath does on all of these. To hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the terrific final chapter in this remarkable story. This is Our American Stories. Levon Helm again. And what a singer, by the way. Let's continue where we last left off in this remarkable story of Jesse James. This is Our American Stories. The James Younger Gang have just entered the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Roger McGrath with the finale. You open that safe now. The key to the success for the James Gang has always been speed, quickness. Joseph Lee Haywood, the cashier that day, delayed them. When Joe Haywood, the bank cashier and Civil War veteran, won't open the vault, Jesse James loses his temper and shoots him in the head. Clear the streets! Jesse's men are firing off their guns, telling people to get back. This is kind of shock and awe. Uh, in the middle of the street. But these people aren't being shocked, and they're not being awed. Townspeople are starting to fight back. They're coming to protect their bank. By now, ordinary citizens, butchers, bakers, barbers, hardware merchants, farmers, and nary a lawman among them, were grabbing guns and giving the outlaws what for. Wielding a rifle from the second floor of a hotel, college student and future physician Henry Wheeler fatally shoots gang member Clell Miller. It's pandemonium. The outlaws are firing revolvers, which are pretty inaccurate on horseback. 
the townspeople have shoulder guns. They're very accurate. These guys are getting shot to pieces on the street. It was a complete disaster for the James gang. And the only thing for them to do is to try to get out of town alive. Hardware merchant Ansel Manning blasts Bill Chadwall into eternity and then shoots Bob Younger's horse out from under him. Younger rolls free of his wounded mount and takes cover behind a staircase. The outlaws return fire, but bullets are coming at them from several directions. Some unarmed citizens throw rocks. After seven minutes of gunfighting, Jesse orders a retreat and the gang splits up. Joseph Lee Haywood, the acting cashier that day, was a thorn in the side to the plans of these robbers. He delayed them. They don't get the money they come for. In fact, the safe was unlocked the whole time. Had they just tried that handle, it would have opened up and revealed about $15,000. The robbery is a complete failure. Now the Minnesotans want justice. More than a 1,000 grab their firearms and form posses and picket lines, triggering the largest manhunt in American history. There are at least a 1,000 men going after these guys. It was instant national news, especially when the James gang was associated with this robbery. Jesse and Frank were Southern boys and murderers. They were hated in Minnesota, and everyone wanted to see them captured and brought to justice. Jesse and Frank go one way, but the Youngers are apprehended. This is the ill-fated moment in the career where what had been a successful game has reached a dead end. Over the course of the next two weeks, all of the James gang are either captured or killed, except for Frank and Jesse. These guys were masters at concealing themselves and getting away. They had to do it all during the Civil War. They were always outnumbered. They always had people chasing them. Northfield was the biggest disaster that Jameses had experienced since the Civil War. They lost men that they had fought with. They both suffered gunshot wounds. But I think in a way, mentally, in some way, they're wounded as well. Frank and Jesse ride a circuitous 500 miles back home to Missouri with just $26.70 to show for their efforts. Frank, he ultimately thought, the way this is going, it's going to be a bullet or a noose for them. But Jesse, he was diehard. After losing every member of his gang, the most wanted man in America goes into hiding over the next several years. Jesse spends his time living under aliases as a family man, now with two children in Missouri, Kentucky, and Kansas. Stay in your seats, do not move. Then in 1879, with his spoils running low and his name out of the press, Jesse returns to action with the new James gang and takes $6,000 from the Chicago and Alton Railroad. At this point, he's just finding somebody that can hold a gun and hold a horse, and that hopefully is trustworthy. 
Jesse plans a job for April 4, 1882 in Platt City, Nebraska. A bank there is stuffed with cash and needs his attention. Two young and newly recruited gang members, Charles and Robert Ford, will go along. Charlie helped Jesse rob the Chicago and Alton Railroad, but Bob has yet to see any action. Jesse needs an extra man because he has uh, a bank robbery planned in Platte City. So he's willing to accept this young Bob Ford, who's Charlie's brother, because Jesse liked Charlie Ford, and, and I'm sure that Charlie vouched for Bob. They were not a ghost of what he'd had before, just common run-of-the-mill backcountry thieves and killers. You don't have the people who were trained, if you will, during the war. America's most wanted outlaw doesn't realize it. It's not the law he should be most afraid of, but his newest gang member, Bob Ford, who is secretly working for Missouri Governor Thomas Crittenden. The governor has posted a $10,000 bounty for Jesse, dead or alive, and Ford is determined to get it. Bob Ford was this media-saturated fan. There's no better way to get close to the object of your admiration than to join his gang. And maybe in some way become a little bit like him. That's the picture of Bob Ford that we have today. Before they leave for Platte City, Jesse and the Ford brothers meet for breakfast at Jesse's home. After enjoying a hearty meal prepared for them by Jesse's wife, C, they retire to the living room to discuss their upcoming job. When Jesse steps up on a chair to straighten a picture, Bob Ford quickly draws his revolver and shoots Jesse through the back of the head. He topples to the floor and dies. America's most notorious outlaw is 34 years old. Bob and Charlie Ford are convicted of murder and sentenced to be hanged. In a matter of days though, they receive a full pardon from Governor Crittenden. Nonetheless, the same governor fails to reward them with the $10,000 bounty. You know, Jesse James is already a hero to many people. When he's killed, he's now a martyr. And it's the way that he's killed. Had he been captured and tried, and had he been executed, it would have been much different. But this is a collusion between the governor of a state and a gang member who shoots his leader in the back of the head. Two years later, 27-year-old Charlie Ford, suffering from tuberculosis and morphine addicted, shoots himself to death with his own gun. A decade later, Bob Ford, who wasn't celebrated as the hero he thought he should have been, is shot to death by Ed O'Kelly. Jesse reaches incredible new heights in the American imagination as a hero, as a martyr, and as a representative of the defeated South. I grew up in Jesse James country. When I was a kid, Jesse James was a hero. Now, I see Jesse as a tragic consequence of an awful, awful war, which was a tragic consequence of an awful, awful institution. Here's folk singer Almeida Riddle. I'm sure you've read of Frank and Jesse James. Well, my father's grandfather and their father was brothers. 
I never was ashamed that the James boys were my cousins, but neither was I proud of it. <laughs> Jesse James was a man who killed many men and robbed many express train. And the people all would say for many miles away they were robbed by Frank and Jesse and James. Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life, and his children too were brave. But a dirty little coward they called Robert Howard laid Jesse James in his grave. And what storytelling. Great job, as always, by Greg. And my goodness, Roger McGrath, what a star. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to all that he's done, all that we do. We have over 800 hours of storytelling up there. If you're on a long trip, download it all. You can get us on iTunes, too. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, the story of Jesse James, the story of the Civil War in a way in a divided country, here on Our American Stories.